This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Bob Comsick. Welcome back. Inflation is running at its hottest pace in, well, as we know, decades and investors are scurrying for shelter. They should be careful where they go, though, as some of these havens often have their own risks. Here to help out, Alan Small, Senior Investment Advisor with Alan Small Financial Group, IA Private Wealth. Welcome back. It's been a while. How are you keeping? I'm doing well, thank you. Thanks for having me. So, where should investors uh, be going these days? I know there's a lot to think about, especially with uh, with COVID and and personal health. But what about personal wealth? Yeah, it's a great question, and I think it all comes down to one's risk tolerance. What uh, an investor is looking to do with their money is it to grow? Is it for income to provide an income for them, etc. So I think investment objectives really will play a, a huge part this upcoming year, because I think the markets are going to be quite volatile. And, uh, you know, we've seen a lot of the volatility play out over, I guess, the, the, the last, know, let's say the last four months or so of last year. And with higher interest rates to come this year, as everyone is predicting, I think this market will continue to be volatile. And, and the choppiness that we saw towards the end of last year, I think, will persist over the course of this year. So I think overall, it's just going to depend on the type of investor you are, what you're looking for, your, you know, what you want your money to do for you, and then you know, try to figure out the best way to uh, reach those investment goals. Before we take a look at uh, what you might suggest for, uh, for Zoomers, what about uh, the U.S. Federal Reserve coming out? And it seems, uh, if you read the minutes of their last meeting without getting into the weeds, but basically indicating that uh, the stimulus is, is going to be uh, loosened and uh, more interest rate hikes, uh, not only, of course, south of the border. If that starts happening there, it'll likely be happening here as well. So what about uh, the volatility? Uh, is that why you feel there could be volatility because of uh, line of thinking such as that? Absolutely. And uh, our, you know, our central bank here, Bank of Canada, could move at the same time or maybe even slightly ahead of the Fed, which I'm hoping won't be the case, but it could be. But you're, you're exactly correct. I think whenever you start to get a, uh, a hint of higher interest rates to come, even though we are coming off a very low number, pretty much interest rates are pretty much rock bottom right now, even though maybe even a four interest rate increases or three, you're talking maybe 75 basis points uh, uh, higher or even a one point higher, still historically would, would still have interest rates at historical lows. So we're not talking huge amounts, but it's that anticipation. It's the market anticipating what's to happen next. And whenever you have a change in thought, you know, and, and, the, and the thought process for so long was lower interest rates for longer. And that investors, if you wanted to, to grow your wealth, you had to be invested in the stock market. Well, right now, that mentality is, is sort of changing. It's no longer lower interest rates for longer. It's now, we are now entering in a cycle where interest rates will start to move higher. And how can you invest during this time? And I think the market is, is, is getting spooked, in my opinion, uh, you know, short term. But I think longer term, I believe interest rates can move higher alongside with the, the stock market. I think both can actually move higher together. And I think we will see that this year. I don't think we're going to see the rates of return that we saw the last few years with interest rates pretty much at zero. So I think you have to take that into consideration. But overall, I think at least initially, both stock market and interest rates can both move higher. And it will be bumpier. But I think at the end of the year, investors will still be happy if they are in the market versus out of the market. Okay, a couple questions here. First of all, for a younger Zoomer, say 50 plus, their investment runway is a lot longer than obviously one who's 60 plus. So let's take a look at, say, 50 plus first. What uh, would you suggest? 
Well, again, I think, you know, age, a lot of people like to talk about age, and, and I get it, and I understand it's a common question. The older we are or the older we get, the less risk someone uh, should take. And it's true in some cases and, and not true in, in many cases. I can tell you that I have uh, clients of mine that are 80 years of age and they're fully invested in the stock market, whereas I have maybe 30-year-old clients that uh, are still an interest-bearing investment. So age necessarily doesn't tell the whole story. I think individual investors that are 50 years old, let's say in that area, that are still looking to grow their wealth, I think there are a lot of things you can do. At this point in time, if you are looking to grow your wealth, you want to find companies to invest in if you're investing in the stock market that have pricing power, those that can pass along the higher inflationary costs to the end user. You, I think you also want to find companies that continue to make money. And this is key because there are a lot of good quality names or names that we know that when you look at it, they actually spend more than they actually make. And so I think at this time with higher inflation and higher interest rates to come, you want to find companies that actually grow their bottom line and top line that show that they can grow, uh, you know, companies that have a good history of growth. And if you can get a good dividend as well from that company, that's a great recipe for success. And I know you said how you have a client there who's uh, 80 and fully invested uh, in the stock market. And uh, true enough, the reason I think I was saying a runway might be shorter for, say, somebody 60 plus is one of the first things or some of the things they might have to consider in addition to investment is, of course, what do they do? OAS, CPP, are they working? Are they not? And if they're a couple, if one's working, the other one isn't. So they're trying to maybe figure out those things at the same time as they're trying to determine what to do eventually then with money that they got coming in, where to put it and uh, how to deal with that. And of course, riffs once you're uh, 71. So there's so many balls uh, that are in the air for those as they start approaching uh, certain milestones in their uh, investment uh, uh, life, as it were. Yeah, and you're 100% correct. And that's why I always tell you know my clients and people I speak to, I speak to a lot of investors on a, on a daily, weekly basis, everybody is, is, has their own unique situation. There are some people that have pensions that are lucky enough to, to have a pension. There are some, uh, like myself, I don't have a pension that, to fall back on when, when I retire. So it's going to depend a lot on that, you know, size of RSPs. You know, what is your income look like or what does your income look like in retirement? Is it the same? Does it significantly drop? Should you start drawing money from your RSPs? prior to retiring? Would that make sense from a tax perspective? There are a lot of things to consider and look at, um, as you as you've just mentioned. So really, it's on a, uh, you know, person by person basis, what you should be doing right now. And, and, you know, I, I would definitely my advice to everyone listening would be consult your investment advisor, because they're the ones that hopefully will set you in the right direction, give you the information, uh, provide the guidance that they're supposed to uh, during these times. And yeah, this and these times are, are, are quite uncertain, uh, especially with all the things we just mentioned, higher inflation, interest rates, et cetera. These are times where you need to rely on professionals to, to guide you to where you need to be. Are you surprised sometimes in people you come across who don't have advisors? It doesn't surprise me. Uh, you know, I've seen obviously over my 25 years, I've seen a lot of different things. Uh, I am surprised in that if you look at pure numbers, you know, those that have uh, sought out the help of an investment advisor over time, statistics do show that they have fared better. Um, you know, we're coming off, let's say, realistically, the last 10 years where markets have pretty much gone straight up with the Arbins point, certain points in time in 2011, the end of 2018, where the markets kind of took a, a dip there. But really, since the, the 2008 uh, financial crisis, uh, individual investors have made good returns. And so we've come through a time, low interest rates. It's been pretty easy to, to, to manage money on your own if that's what you want to do. Really, the investment advisor themselves, in my opinion, people like myself, we earn our keep when times are more difficult, when times are volatile, when the choices aren't so easy to be made. And I think we're entering into a period uh, like that right now where you just can't close your eyes and pick an investment and it's going to go up for you next this, this current year, 2022. 
you need to do your research, you need to do your homework, and you need to do a plan. Make a plan. What does this investor want? What are they searching for? And how can we get it for them? And I think that's really what an investment advisor is here to do. Hold your hand when it needs to be held and, and, and try and take advantage of opportunities when they're there as well. You getting more people these days, uh, or do you anticipate to be getting more people these days reaching out to hold your hand and others such as yourself? <laughs> Good question. I, I hope not, because that means times will be uh, a little bit frightening when they, when they reach out to hold your hand. But, but overall, I, you know, I, I think holding hands it obviously means different things. It means when times are tough, but it also means when times are, are more volatile and there are a lot of questions out there. So, you know, I think from the standpoint of asking questions and, and needing guidance, yeah, I do think, you know, uh, over the last, let's call it year and a half or two years, there have been a number of calls, a number of questions that, you know, I, I've helped hopefully individual investors with answering their, their, their questions or perhaps, you know, quelling their fears a little bit because there have been a lot of times where, where people have been fearful out there. And uh, as Warren Buffett has said many times, you know, when those are fearful, that's probably the best time to be an investor. So overall, I just think going forward, it's going to be a choppier ride, a bumpier ride. But I don't think investors should be scared. I think higher interest rates will help certain individuals like those that are retired that are trying to get a higher rate of interest on their money. I think that's a positive. And for those that are invested in the stock market and searching for growth, as I said, I think this time will give us opportunity. There will be dips in the market that I think should be purchased. And if people look for those as opportunity, I think we'll be just fine. Alan Small, Senior Investment Advisor with Alan Small Financial Group, IA Private Wealth. Thanks for your time and for your insight. Thank you very much. Bob Consick for Libby's Nimer, and I'll be back with you tomorrow on Free For All Friday. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby's Nimer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Bob Comsick. Welcome back. Ontario's reporting 20 more deaths linked to COVID. It's the highest single day toll recorded since late May as virus related hospitalizations keep climbing. Now, 2,279 COVID patients, almost uh, uh, a couple hundred more than yesterday, 319 in intensive care, up from 200 just seven days ago. Now, staffing's an issue in healthcare. You m- might wish to weigh in on that, 416-360-0740 or toll-free, 1-866-744-740. Maybe somebody working in the field or maybe even uh, someone with an anecdotal uh, experience they'd care to share. Now, the three opposition party leaders talked about it uh, virtually this morning, along with the very Various union leaders, including Charlene Stewart, president of SEIU Healthcare. It uh, represents over 60,000 workers, healthcare workers in this province. And Charlene joins us now. Welcome. Thank you. Good afternoon, Bob. Very nice to be with you. Uh, Charlene, what conclusion did you all reach? And was it unanimous in your discussion this morning? Well, we definitely all agreed that it's time to call the legislature back. We are in a crisis in this province like we've never seen before. The fact that two major hospitals have declared a code orange uh, is very alarming, and I'm quite honestly surprised that the Premier has not called the legislature back. But that was a consensus. We all agree that we need an immediate health human resources plan to deal with this crisis, And the beginning of that would be to repeal Bill 124. So that was the conclusion today that all of us agreed with. Uh, Refresh the memory of us us and some listeners about Bill 124, what it entails. Yeah, it it is confusing. Uh, The simplest way to put it is that uh, these workers are capped by a total cost of 1%. So the total cost, people look at it... uh, a lot just to be the wages, and this crisis is not only about wages. So, for instance, if a personal support worker makes $17 an hour, uh, when we're trying to improve the working conditions, the government has capped our ability at 1% of that, meaning that we've got $0.17 cents, uh, that that worker needs to choose. Do you want it on wages? Do you want it on very critically badly needed mental su- support uh, right now, like physio? Uh, or a psycho, psycho, 
mental health support because they're all experiencing uh, post-traumatic stress in them after the last two years? Do you want to put it on sick time? Because obviously we don't want workers working when they're sick. They need to have paid sick time. So we've got 17 cents to try and address all of that in the uh, bargaining that we've been doing with the government since they've placed on this cap. And again, it's the crisis that we're in. Definitely the cost of living is going up. It, uh, wages is an issue. Uh, the inequities in wages, we've called on this government to implement universal health care wages across the board so that uh, sectors aren't competing for these valued frontline workers as they are right now. So there's many, many issues. So the first uh, step towards dealing with this crisis is to remove that uh, bill so that we can develop a health human resources plan to address many, many issues these workers are facing right now. Are you confident? Do you feel, I know you hope, that the legislature will be recalled and some or all of this uh, can happen the way you and the opposition leaders want? You know, Bob, I, I'm hopeful. You know, that's all we really have right now is hope. Uh, but obviously my experience with uh, the government over the last two years is many times we've advised them on what to do. We've given them some recommendations all the way back to treating this uh, you know, as if it's airborne, providing N95 masks, um, they don't, and have proven that they don't uh, act proactively, they always react. And here we are today because of the lack of taking heed to some of our warnings and our advice, they are reacting today in a crisis that we have a long ways up to get out of this. So I really hope that the Premier has listened today. Uh, you know, it was a nonpartisan press conference. Uh, obviously, it was more about the crisis that we're in. Uh, I really hope that he listens and brings not only our two unions back together and those three party leaders, but, you know, other healthcare unions and, you know, people like the Ontario Hospital Association. Workers are literally you know, begging uh, the government to show some action, not just show hope and, you know, great, uh, you know, words of heroism. They really need to see action now because they're leaving. Uh, we warned the government last May that registered practical nurses were leaving. You know, that's part of the reason why we've got code orange. They didn't uh, act on that. So, you know, I always remain hopeful, uh, but I'm not really that encouraged that the premier will take us up on our offer. You mentioned crisis, action, words that uh, are, and I know you're not using them lightly when uh, when you uh, put them out there, but uh, paint a picture based on maybe what you've seen yourself, uh, as well as uh, what experiences have been shared by some of those you represent, be it in hospitals, I take it it would be primarily hospitals or also as well as in, in uh, nursing homes. Yeah, Bob, I mean, it is a multi-sector problem. I mean, we soon forget we're, you know, we're two years into this. We're exhausted from COVID, but remember the beginning, it hit long-term care, you know, like very, very, very sadly. We lost a lot of seniors. A lot, we lost a lot of members. Uh, you know, you think back to that crisis where those frontline workers were wearing garbage bags because the province didn't provide them with the proper personal protective equipment. We fought the government. You know, the SARS report was there that we should always, always act on the side of, you know, caution and implement precautionary measures. We had to take the government to court to get them to provide N95 masks and PPE to non-regulated staff, frontline workers such as healthcare, dietary. They all need to be protected. We're finding that out now. Uh, again, we, um, the hospital workers now, were obviously, uh, it's the crisis in hospitals. We warned the government that there was going to be this crisis and that you weren't going to have the frontline workers there. We're seeing that now. I, you know, I, I get many calls per day. A home care worker called me the other day crying because um, she couldn't serve her clients that day because she needed childcare. You know, schools are closed and, you know, they don't have uh, accessible childcare. So she had to leave her residents, her seniors, to take care of her child. I've got nurses calling. Uh, they break down sobbing. I mean, they are experiencing uh, traumatic crises, uh, collapsing at work. You know, they, they're worried about not giving the care that's provided that's needed because of the shortage of staff. They're saying that on, on wards, there's 50% of the staff missing. They're either infected with COVID or some of them are truly off for mental health reasons. I mean, it's like a war that the vets come home and they were experiencing all of this trauma and they're not being supported. 
Uh, they're not being provided counseling. One nurse said to me that after her shift, it was a horrific shift. Not one person said, you know, how are you doing at the end of the shift, management or others? And, you know, it's just little things like that that they're experiencing. And they are on the break. And the most cherished, cherished services that the people of Ontario depend upon is our healthcare system, our education system, and both of them are in on life support, both of them right now. An update from provincial officials is coming this afternoon on the deployment of uh, rapid antigen tests. This would follow the announcement by the federal government yesterday that an additional 140 million are going to be uh, delivered to the provinces and to the territories. NDP leader uh, Andrea Horvath has gone on record and has said, uh, and even as heard on Zuma Radio News yesterday afternoon after the the announcement by Justin Trudeau, uh, she really doesn't have any faith in this government being able to, uh, to deliver the tests. What about you? Well, I mean, the first phase that we saw, uh, we experienced, you know, the shortage immediately. I myself was looking for someone couldn't find it anywhere. Uh, again, it's a sad thing to say that we don't have confidence in the government to deliver the rapid tests. We don't have confidence in them to deliver health care to protect the workers and provide them the safe uh, resources that they need to take care of the people of Ontario. Uh, but they've, they've led us to this feeling. They've constantly let down the people of Ontario. They are constantly letting down frontline healthcare workers. So it's pretty hard to find any confidence in what they're saying they're going to be doing in the future. You know, you say that this government has been more reactive than proactive, given the lay of the land as it is now and as the direction in which it seems to be going. It It's hard to think that they won't respond and soon. Well, as I said, they typically do respond, but it is reactive. And then as we've witnessed a few days later, sometimes a few hours later, they pivot. Uh, come up with another message. Uh, they they just are not reliable. They do not have a plan. I don't know who's advising the premier, but I, today, uh, you know, the three party, other party leaders, two really prominent union leaders are saying, bring us to the table. Let us be part of the decision making. Many times they've asked us and consulted, we've given them advice and they haven't taken it. You know, all the way through this uh, advice that we've given them, months later, many, many lives later, they've decided to turn around and do what we advised months and months and months ago. This shouldn't be about partisanship, shouldn't be about anybody's future except the people of Ontario and those frontline workers. That has to be our number one focus right now. And I've lost confidence in this government to be able to deal with things immediately. They've proven that. Charlene Stewart, president of SEIU Healthcare, which represents over 60,000 of the healthcare workers in Ontario. Thank you for your time, your views, and your insight. My pleasure, Bob. Stay safe. Thank you. You as well. Bob Comsick in for Libby Zneimer on Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. And we will take a look at your personal finances, at least the guest who will be joining us will, Right after this, you're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Bob Comsick. Good afternoon. Libby is off this week. And as Gavin just mentioned in the news, a year ago today, the eyes of the world were on Washington. President Joe Biden marked the anniversary of the violent Capitol Hill insurrection this morning by forcefully condemning his predecessor. We must be absolutely clear about what is true and what is a lie. And here's the truth. The former president of the United States of America has created and spread a web of lies about the 2020 election. Some members of Congress observing a moment of silence today. Others will spend the day educating Americans on the workings of democracy. And still others don't think the deadly siege on Congress needs to be remembered at all. 
Where they stand on remembrance can largely be attributed to their political stripe. So what are your views a year later? Maybe some of our American neighbors across the lake in western New York would care to weigh in. The numbers for them, toll-free, 1-866-744-740. And locally, if you're in the area, 416-360-0740. Until you give us a call, joining us now for a discussion, Mark Brewer, professor and interim chair of the Political Science Department at the University of Maine. And this is the first time you're joining us here on Fight Back, Mark. So welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Before looking at the state of your country now, did you truly believe, foresee deadly violence as a possibility? Uh, no. Um, you know, I can still remember a year ago today, you know, sitting, uh, I was home by, by lunch that day. So sitting at home and my two older children were there as well, watching these events start to unfold on live television and, and not really being able to believe what I was seeing. So, uh, you know, even as someone who, you know, studies, uh, political polarization and realized how divided we were as a country, I never could have foreseen that happening. Now, before looking, um, uh, further at this, a survey's come out this morning in this country. It's from Angus Reid Institute. You may or may not be familiar. Regardless, the findings, some of them are most Americans, including half of Trump voters, say riders should be held accountable. Most Canadians and Americans surveyed feel that the attack was domestic terrorism. Do you agree? I, I agree. I agree that it was domestic terrorism. I don't think there's any doubt about that. And at least in my opinion, I know there are there are people who disagree. Uh, actually, a fair number of those who disagree in the United States on that, including former President Trump. But I I think that in my opinion, there's no doubt um, that it's domestic terrorism. And I also would agree um, strongly that those who participated in and and were responsible for should be held accountable and punished for those actions. The deep political polarization that you're experiencing in your country. Is it something that would have come about regardless of who was leader of the Republican Party, or is it because of who is the leader of the GOP? I, I think it's I think it's really neither of those, because I, I guess, and then let me uh, try and clarify that. I, the state of polarization that we're in right now in the United States predates Donald Trump, right? There's there's no doubt about that, that we can trace the origins of the current political polarization in the United States. Some people would say you could trace it to the 80s. Um, I probably would trace the origins to the early to mid-1960s. Um, that being said, Donald Trump you know, kind of added a huge amount of fuel to the fire there. So were we polarized before Trump? Absolutely. Did Trump... Um, increase that polarization exponentially? Absolutely. And I don't know that anyone other than Trump could have done it quite the way he did it. And um, so is the political divide wider, deeper than a year ago, do you think? I think it is. I I, I remember, you know, kind of reflecting in the, the hours and the days after uh, January 6th of 2021, thinking, and I've read quite a few accounts this morning of people who said they thought the same thing, that all right, well, this is bad, uh, but maybe there'll be a positive that comes out of this, and maybe this will really be the event that makes Americans realize we need to we need to start to come together to to try and and shrink some of this division and and at least be able to interact with each other civilly and respectfully. Um, that didn't happen, and so I guess it, given given the fact that that didn't happen, um, I think divisions have just even further solidified. They've become uh, deeper and wider, and um, I don't see them going away anytime soon. Speaking with Mark Brewer, professor and interim chair of the political science department at the University of Maine, Bob Comsick, sitting in for Libby Snymer. You're listening to Fight Back here on, on Zoomer Radio. Can the deep political polarization, Mark, be overcome? If so, how? If not, why not? Well, I, I think it, first of all, we have to be hopeful it can be overcome, right? Uh, right. That's the first place I'd start. Um, that being said, I do think that there are, you know, historical precedent for it being overcome. Um, you know, the United States has been polarized before. 
um, pretty intensely. And, you know, obviously a lot of people would, you know, thinking about that would immediately jump to the Civil War era, and that would be one example. But, um, and I don't think anybody would want to settle um, polarization the way that was settled. But there are other eras, too. I mean, America was deeply divided in the, the first couple of decades after the Constitution was ratified. You know, the, the divisions between John Adams' Federalist and Thomas Jefferson's uh, Jeffersonian Republicans were intense. Uh, there was significant political division in this country in the latter part of the 19th, early part of the 20th century. Um, and even the New Deal era, which today is remembered as, uh, by many, not all, but as this, this highly productive era of American politics, was marked by deep political divisions that were really only um, papered over, if not addressed, with America's entry into World War II. So, and in all of those instances, the high levels of polarization were overcome. Um, so I think that historical precedent alone gives us reason to think that, well, eventually um, these levels of polarization will decline and some of these differences will be able to be bridged. Um, that being said, the second part of your question of how do you do that, um, I don't think that has an obvious answer. I, I, think it's, I think the one thing we can say for sure is that it requires you know, a, a fairly intense amount of reflection both you know individually and collectively because um, I think this is something that you know all Americans individually and us as a collective have contributed to so I think we need to reflect on this and then try and figure out how how can we move forward uh, to try and improve this situation and, and it's the work's going to be difficult um, it's it requires a huge amount of effort it requires people to behave reasonably and civilly and respectfully, even towards those with whom they fundamentally disagree. Um, whether we can do that, or at least a, a you know a, a, enough of us can do that uh, in order to move things forward, I don't know the answer to that yet. And uh, COVID still playing is COVID playing uh, a part in the polarization? I think COVID is definitely playing a part in it. Um, I also think differences of opinion on COVID are caused by this high level of polarization, right? I mean, you've got, um, you know, the, the biggest the biggest uh, indicator now of someone's views on things like masking or, you know, vaccine mandates or the usefulness of vaccines is partisanship. You know, Democrats um, are very different in their views on that stuff regarding COVID than Republicans are. And so I don't know that COVID is making the the, par the polarization any worse, but Americans' reactions to and beliefs about COVID are definitely being heavily influenced by partisan polarization. Now, I think there was talk the other day that Donald Trump was supposed to, I guess, be seen, be heard uh, on this day. Turns out uh, there was a change of heart, change of mind. Uh, don't know if that was his or somebody behind the scenes. And if it was someone behind the scenes, uh, he or she would have to be quite persuasive because, uh, as we we know, maybe not firsthand, but from uh, what is being reported and what people such as yourself might have a better idea than we do. And that is he doesn't uh, usually listen as much as he tends to act and, and just do whatever he wishes to do. But um, are you surprised that uh, he didn't pop up today? Uh, I, I was surprised when he, when he announced that he was going to cancel uh, the event that he had scheduled mm. for today because he had spent a lot of time publicly hyping this event and um, you know, it was going to be at his Mar-a-Lago estate in, um, in Florida. And it was going you know, to be deemed as, you know, the the real story on January 6th. And then, you know, a few days ago, um, it was, you know, announced that the event was not going to be held. Um, well, who convinced him to do that? It just said that he, he had been, he had listened to some advisors. I have not received any reports where those advisors were named, but I think you're right. It has to be someone or a group of someone who are highly influential with Trump, and that's a relatively small group. So um, I don't know who that could have been. But it was, I was surprised when he, he announced that was going to uh, be canceled. Uh, he's promised um, that he will talk on this subject at another planned rally. I believe it's in Arizona on the right. 15th of January. So he's going to get there. Um, and I would also say the day's not over yet. So um, whether he can actually help himself to, to stay out of the spotlight today, 
I think the jury's out on that. We got a long time to go before the clock strikes midnight tonight. Uh, so true. And and as I just kind of snickered there a little bit, it was not to make light of the situation, but uh, it's so true. It's uh, it's only high noon. It's it's not midnight. So there's plenty of time for uh, a sudden about face. Do you think that both uh, Joe Biden and Donald Trump face off again in two years? If I had to, if I had to guess right now or bet right now, I'd bet on it. Um, I, you know, there's been no indication from Joe Biden that he um, would not seek re-election. And I think the latest was that he fully intends to seek re-election so long as um, his health allows him to. Um, Donald Trump's been a little bit more coy about it. But again, um, you know, he hasn't said that he isn't going to seek re-election and he's raising money at a pretty healthy clip. So I, I would think that as of right now, he's got to be the he's got to be the favorite as the Republican nominee in 2024. And I think it, and I think if he does decide to run, there's zero chance of him losing that Republican nomination. I, I can't imagine that if he decides, yes, I do want to run, that he's not the GOP's nominee for president in 2024. So you don't uh, you don't think anybody. Well, they might be considering it uh, privately, uh, but you really don't see anyone else jumping in. I, I wouldn't see anyone else uh, who who is you know kind of catering to the Trump base throwing their hat in. Could someone like a Liz Cheney try and, and run for the Republican nomination against him? Sure, you know. So it, it, I think that would be quite likely, whether it be Cheney or it be another never Trump Republican. Um, you know, I think I do. I think that would be highly likely, um, and they'd get some support, but I don't think they'd have nearly enough support within the party to, to wrest the nomination from him. But um, would there be someone like, you know, would, would someone like Ron DeSantis, who's widely seen as, you know, kind of Trump's heir apparent almost, um, you know, would, is DeSantis going to step up and run against Trump for the Republican nomination? I think that would be highly unlikely. And I think if DeSantis isn't going to risk it, then I can't imagine any anybody else would either. Yeah. And for DeSantis to, to even do so, clearly the the blessing would uh, have to come from the uh, the political pope on that one, right? He'd have to get I, I the backing. So. I mean, I, I think if if Trump decides for some reason decides not to run, um, then given his um, kind of control over the party, but also what we know about his personality, I think then Trump would be very keen to play kingmaker. And um, I think everybody who wanted that Republican nomination would have to head to. Mar-a-Lago, or if it was in the summer, maybe to the golf course in New Jersey and, you know, talk to the king and and see if they could convince him to uh, give him the nominate, give him his support for the nomination. But I think we got a long ways to go before we get there, because my gut tells me that that Trump will run again in 2024. I, I can't imagine that he doesn't. Okay, you may want to stay clear of this, and you may anticipate where my next and final question goes. And seeing as you're hazarding a guess, you want as far as him running, uh, you want to hazard a guess if uh, he knocks Biden off. Should Biden decide to seek re-election, or that's so far off, you just want to stay clear, and you you don't want to have this come back and bite you. Well, I I, I think it's I think it's too far out to say. Um, but I, I could also say that I learned my lesson. I, I can remember, you know, in, in 2015, um, you know, at a number, and I'm sure you could probably go and find the clips online, um, you know, saying to a number of media outlets and also at a, at a live event that I did with a colleague, um, you know, making the statement that Donald Trump won't even win a single nominating contest, much less, you know, get the, the Republican presidential nomination. And he did. And then, um, it, and then even when he, that happened, I said, I don't think he'll win the election. And he did. So, um, I, I, you know, once bitten, twice shy, I guess. So maybe I wouldn't predict that. But even if I was of a mind to, I think, you know, we've got a long time to go before November of 2024. And, you know, a month can be a long time in American politics, much less um, over two years. That being said, looking at Joe Biden's chances right now, his situation doesn't look good. You know, I mean, inflation um, is running rampant in the United States. As you said, COVID is is um, not only still an issue, but perhaps at um, the worst point it's been since the pandemic started, at least in terms of number of cases. Um, Biden's approval rating is underwater uh, by a significant amount. Um, right now, his chances don't look good, but things could change a lot by uh, 2024. 
And I said, finally, but a follow up to that, then, if not Biden, if things continue not to look good as the date approaches, and I know, as you pointed out, a couple of years away, who do you see as uh, possibly someone the Democrats would want to put their money on? Oh, that's a that's another good question. I mean, I I think before we before we'd even think about that, I think we'd need to really be carefully consider how we'd even get to that situation, right? It's been a long time uh, since uh, a sitting president who had only served one term, who wanted to run for a second and tried to run for a second term, was denied their party's nomination, right? I mean, we've, including some presidents who were deeply unpopular. I mean, Jimmy Carter was pretty deeply unpopular in 1979, and and Ted Kennedy wasn't a nobody, and Kennedy challenged him, and I, I, Carter held on for the nomination. Now, he got beat up pretty badly in the general by Ronald Reagan, but um, I think if Biden wants the nomination, it's hard for me to envision, and attempts to get it, I think it's hard for me to envision a scenario where the Democrats deny it to him and, and give it to someone else. That being said, if Biden were to step aside um, and say, well, no, I'm not going to seek re-election, then I think that sets off um, what would probably be an incredibly intense but truncated scramble for the nomination. And, you know, a lot of people initially, the knee jerk would be, oh, um, Vice President Harris. But uh, I don't necessarily know that that would be the place the party would turn. Um, Biden's Labor Secretary, Pete Buttigieg, is, or um, not Labor Secretary, but um, Secretary Buttigieg has been uh, someone who would be widely seen uh, as an option. But I think there's other ones out there, too. Um, and if Biden does decide to say, you know what, I'm not going to go for re-election, We'll see Democrats scrambling to try and, and get that nomination to take on Donald Trump, or if it's not Trump, some other Republican nominee. Mark Brewer, professor and interim chair of the political science department at the University of Maine. Our first discussion here on Zoomer Radio's Fight Back. Enjoyed it. Thank you so much for your uh, insight from uh, south of the border. And thank you again. All right. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Joining us now on Fight Back, Michael Adams, president of the Enveronics Institute, a group of research and communications consulting companies with views from this country. First, there was the attack in Washington uh, last winter, then this past September in our election insults and, of course, stones even fired in the direction of Justin Trudeau. Were the events south of the border a preview of where our political future is going? Answering that and other Questions that we'll put to him, Michael Adams of Enveronics. Welcome. Hi. So, were the events of the border a preview of uh, where things are going with politics in the North? Well, uh, we always have some version of, of what's going on. If they have a mass shooting every day, we have one a year. So if it can happen there, it can happen here. Um, there will be some a version of it. I, if, if you want to say, do we have a Republican Party uh, in Canada? We do. It's called the People's Party of Canada. It, it's got 5% of the vote or nearly 5% of the vote in the last election <clears throat> and uh, up from 1.6 in the previous election. So, you know, we do have, we do have uh, versions of uh, U.S. politics, but uh, generally uh, we still, uh, we're still Canada. We're still different. We're they're the revolutionaries. We're the counter-revolutionaries. Uh, we like peace, order, and good government. And they like life, liberty, and happiness. Um, we don't. Uh, we have confidence in our elections. We don't think they're rigged. Uh, half of Americans do, and and uh, our a losing party doesn't think elections are rigged. If they lose, uh, if the conservatives lose, they don't say it was because the election was stolen. They, uh, they uh, have confidence in our. Uh, we have confidence in our political institutions. So, uh, yeah, I mean, anybody, you, you will get an example. You'll get an anecdotal example uh, in Canada of, of parallels to the United States. But I think it's astounding that you know they're our biggest trading partner, or they're our, our allies in NATO, and so on. That we're juxtaposed against them. We're inundated with their politics. We're inundated with their popular culture. Uh, some of which we find amusing, some of which we find horrifying, but uh, we're still able to maintain our own uh, cultural integrity and our political integrity. Now, in uh, 
uh, op-ed that you wrote in the Globe the other day, you said that we're not becoming similarly divided as Americans. Why do you feel there's uh, really no comparison between the two? I know you stated some of that there, but if you care to expand. Yeah, well, if you ask, uh, you know, you ask Americans where they are on the ideological spectrum of left-right down there, you you can use the words liberal and conservative. And what you find is, is that, you know, about a third are extreme liberal, a third are extreme conservative, and, uh, and about a third in the middle. Um, Canada is overwhelmingly in the middle, uh, double the proportion in the middle than you have in the United States, and, and very small numbers, 5% or so, on the extreme of the right or the extreme of the left. When you ask people what is their their ideological position, so you know the old joke: Why does the Canadian cross the road? It's to get to the middle. And in Canada, the middle is where politics uh, is fought. Yeah, you have to go to the middle, stand on the medium, look both ways, and continue <laughs> your your walk across the street, right? While you have your, even if you're not at a crosswalk, have your finger pointing out to to say, "Let me cross." So anyway, We've take. Been- you know, in America, you have a fight to see who's right. In Canada, you uh, talk yourself to death. Uh, so the French, the English uh, decided to talk themselves to death rather than to, to fight each other. Uh, we didn't have a civil war. Um, and uh, we had rebellions. Uh, there was some loss of life, for sure, again, just like, but, you know, we, we, thought we would lose 10, 20, 30 people in some fights. Uh, in the Civil War, what was it, seven or 800,000 people died? Uh, it's, the scale between the two of us is so great uh, that it's a qualitative difference. We're, we're much more similar to the, the Danes and the Swedes and the Norwegians and, than we are to the Americans in, in terms of our belief in institutions and, and kind of the way we conduct our uh, politics. You're you're saying how we're, who we're similar to in view of democracy, uh, but in terms of uh, view of democracy between us and Americans, what uh, has Enveronics found in terms well, of uh, numbers? Americans have are, have kind of lost faith in their their political system. The the uh, in particular the losers. Like uh, when when they win, they think, oh yeah, the system's pretty good. But when they lose, then they they think the system is rigged, and this is particularly true with Republicans. And, you know, Republicans, in terms of the engaged Americans, it's, uh, that's about half the engaged number, the people who actually are engaged in the political system who vote and, and so on. So they're, they're kind of a 50-50 country, with, with the Democratic Party actually being a party that actually now believes in democracy. And the Republicans are believing... Not so much in democracy, they want it to be a republic, but they don't really have much faith in, in democracy. So it's, uh, it's pretty scary uh, for, you know, uh, for Americans uh, who do believe in democratic institutions, that everybody ought to be able to vote, that there shouldn't be gerrymandering. Um, and and uh, so it's, uh, uh, America's headed to a very... Uh, uh, a nasty place. Um, a lot of people have guns. Like when I first studied America, they had 200 million guns, 325 million Americans, 200 million guns. Now they have 400 million guns. Even liberals in the United States are getting guns because they're thinking it might be safer to have a gun than not to have a gun. Um, you know, they can have, and they debate, you know, are, is, are the guns, is it going to be open carry or concealed carry? I mean, these are inconceivable debates in Canada, uh, that you would have such, uh, that you would go into a restaurant in Canada and somebody should be sitting there with a gun in their holster. <laughs> We're a long way from that. Yeah, I, I tend to agree. And I think a lot of people would tend to, uh, to agree with that. Our previous guest in talking about the situation stateside on, on the anniversary, uh, Mark Brewer, the political science professor at the University of Maine, pointed out how he feels that actually the the divide is even deeper and wider now than it was on that day that the, the world watched. Um, I know we've been talking about in terms of with Canadians and you've been kind of at times crossing over with your uh, comments on the American side. What about on uh, 
on this side, uh, when I asked uh, Mark as far as uh, what part COVID might be playing in their polarization, what about in terms of Canadians' views with democracy and uh, COVID? What uh, part, if any, that's playing here? Well, we've we've got about 10% anti-vaxxers, um, <clears throat> 10% of nearly 40 million people, 4 million people. Um, that's a lot of folks. <laughs> and uh, with Omicron variant being, uh, you know, so virulent, uh, you know, 4 million people who aren't vaxxed, and then they do get it. This is what we're afraid of. But they're the ones that are the most likely to have get seriously ill and have to go to hospitals and all of that sort of thing. So at 10%, it is a, it's a minority, it's, uh, but it's, it's uh, a pretty dangerous minority um, and dangerous to themselves, dangerous to their, to their wives and children and uh, husbands and, uh, and if they ever went to work, co-workers and so on. So uh, it's much less than in the U.S. in terms of the proportion of the population that's, that's anti uh, anti-vax, but uh, it's still significant, and it's a problem. Uh, generally, the other 90% is, uh, you know, we're we're Canadians, like we're allowed to <laughs> disagree with uh, what uh, the, the execution of uh, shutdowns and all of this sort of thing, but we haven't lost faith in the political system. We think federalism is a good system. Uh, you hear a lot about Albertans being alienated, but overwhelmingly, they are are engaged. They are. They, they believe in the fe- in federalism. Uh, there's no support for you know, leaving the country. There's uh, there's uh, in, in Alberta or Saskatchewan, and it's even as lower lower in Quebec, which of course was something we spent <laughs> decades dealing with. So actually, the faith in democracy, the faith in the federal system, um, the general faith that in science and in political leaders trying to work their way through this unprecedented uh, uh, pandemic uh, we're 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 kind of muddling our way through like Canadians often do well as you pointed out earlier right the the muddy mushy middle is where we find ourselves again yeah and uh, and that's where uh, that's where the votes are um, you can you can go for regional votes in Canada but ideologically uh, you better stay away from hard right or hard left, or you're going to find yourself. Uh, well, there's no way in which you're going to form government. Mm-hmm. So the, the liberals know that, the conservatives know that, and they kind of go back and forth. Uh, Aaron O'Toole knows that he has to have uh, the two thirds of uh, supporters of his party who are, are consider themselves centrist or even left of center. He needs their votes. Um, he needs the votes of cities. He needs the votes of multicultural Canada. Uh, he needs uh, votes in Quebec. And so everybody has kind of got to go halfway to reach out to the other. And rather than demonizing the other and just mobilizing your base, uh, if you want to win in Canada, you have to reach out to everybody. Michael Adams, president of the Enveronics Institute, a group of research and communications consulting companies. Thank you for your time as well as your insight on both sides of the border. (laughs) Thanks very much. I'm Bob Comsick, filling in for Libby Zneimer. You are listening to Fight Back on Zoomer Radio, AM 740, also 96.7 FM downtown. Coming up after the break, we will take a look at the COVID situation with one of the leaders of a healthcare union. Back after this. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.